everyone. Thanks for listening. If you find that this podcast adds something to your life, please consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash share the load. Other ways to support the show are to write a review on iTunes, to post about the show on social media, and share it with folks you think would like it. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the show. Share the Load is a time to reflect on the division of labor within our personal relationships. When it comes to the burden of daily life, how do our evolving views on identity and work determine how we share responsibility? I'm your host, Mia Schachter. I'm an intimacy coordinator for film, TV, and theater, and a writer and educator in Los Angeles. Today, I'm talking to Brooke Hare. Brooke is a practicing witch and tattooer whose work centers the power and the potential of ritual. They are genderqueer, a Gemini son, and live with their cat, Lucha. Hi, Brooke. Hi. <laughs> Did I say Lucha right? You said it okay. just right. Great. Yeah. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How has your um, solo quarantine been recently? Hmm. Well, recently it's been a little bit easier because, as you know, I was sick early on. Um, and so I was alone for a couple weeks while I just got through that and then um, and got through like the period after to make sure that it was safe for my partner to come see me. And um, so now I'm kind of like by by juxtaposition, things are very easy now because mm-hmm. I can see my partner and I'm like well enough to bike. And um, yeah, so it's kind of feeling like a, a, an oddly joyful moment of the, the full span. Cool. I'm glad to yeah. hear that. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, well, uh, my first question would be, uh, do you have um, – formative early memories of kind of learning uh, how labor was divided in the home and outside of the home in the world? I do. Um, I do. I have some, I have really strong, I'm a little nervous, so I'm going to talk slow in the beginning. Yeah. Do you want to take a deep breath with me? Yeah. 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 (sighs) That's better. Um, let's see. So I have really strong memories of my parents and how the load, like how the workload was divided in my house because it was a little, um, it was kind of like a mixed bag. They were, they didn't divide things in traditional gender roles. My parents are straight cis people. And so my mom um, my mom was like the primary breadwinner, even though they both worked. So, but like, I remember that she kind of, her work had some more, had like more intensity and demanded longer hours for her, um, than my dad. So in my early childhood, um, my dad was kind of like around a little bit more for the, um, I don't know, like the shuttling of us to places. <laughs> and he, um, and we all cleaned together as a family. So like cleaning was a group activity. Um, 
mostly I'm sure we didn't help that much but we <laughs> we were we had to like put in hours but who knows how much we were actually helping right. but my parents were really intense about like the group clean and we would do it all together at the same time and Saturdays and then mm, my dad did like it's just like I just have these memories of like specific tasks like my dad did laundry but my mom did dishes and my mom cooked but my dad did all the like grilling and meat (laughs) my dad does that too yeah it's so my mom cooks and my dad will tell you that he well he doesn't cook but he'll grill yeah Yeah, that's And and he will make guacamole Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. My dad will reheat. He would reheat things like in butter on a skillet. Sure. So like leftovers. And we'd always, my mom would get so upset because we'd be like, dad is such a good cook. And she'd be like, he just heats everything up in butter. Oh my God. Um, That's so yeah. yeah. But they like, I mean, it was just, I don't know. When I was, it was kind of nice to reflect on this. And it's something I've talked a lot about in therapy because, because, you know, um, it's an important question, like where yeah. do you learn who does what? But like the emotional labor was pretty, was similarly like very divided by like subject matter almost. Hmm. My dad, much more comfortable talking about sex. My mom oh. um, did all of our homework with us. My dad wouldn't do, he wouldn't do it. She'd get mad sometimes and like ask him and he'd be like, he he's really smart, but he would just be like, no, no, I don't do homework. Um, so it's just this like weird, but she's kind of a more of like, she has more of an academic identity. So in my household, it was like, I don't know. It was like everyone went by like strengths and weaknesses, I guess, kind of how, kind of how it played out. And that sometimes that was whether or not like it was the most efficient, but like it raised a lot of friction. My parents, yeah, there was like a lot of friction about who did what the most. Interesting. You know, you're that what you're talking about, about like from like from each according to their uh, ability, yeah, you know, to each yeah. according to the need, like whatever that quote is from the Communist Manifesto. Oh, geez. Okay. You know, yeah. well, cool. but you're making me think of that because like there's what's sort of like missing from that concept is like the possibility of like learning and expanding Mm. your Ah. skills and expertise Mm -hmm. right and so like if if all I ever do is what I'm already good at and that's like all I have to offer then I don't learn new things necessarily or I don't and so often like teaching is how we learn best yeah you know and it's just interesting I've never really thought about that quote as like actually potentially kind of limiting to our like mm. intellectual expansion yeah I mean I mean I'm actually not familiar with that quote but I um I really appreciate that take on it because it's a little like it's I love working I love working where my strengths are it makes you feel great but when I think about it as like a model for three kit raising three children that's like a long time a long yeah. time span to be like only per, uh assisting in certain areas and never really, I mean, they shook it up a little bit, but not too much. Hmm. I was just having, I was just eating with my parents the other night and um, reminiscing about my favorite and earliest memory of like um, my dad trying to cook Hmm. and my mom like 
left me and my sister with him. And I remember thinking like, this is weird. Like this rarely happens, you know, she's leaving and she's leaving us with dad. And, um, and she was like, all right, like you have to feed them lunch. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I remember even, I think I was like seven or eight. And I remember being like, I don't think he does that mom. Like, Uh, are you sure? And then she left and, you know, eventually I was hungry. And I remember thinking like, okay, I gotta go like, go ask dad for food. And I was like, Hey dad, I'm hungry now. And he was like, okay, what do you want? And I was like, um, I don't know, pasta. And I remember kind of thinking like, that's easy, right? Like that's, Oh my gosh. You know? (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, pasta. And he was like, sure. Do you know how to make pasta? (laughs) Oh, dad. (laughs) Whoa. I think you boil water. Like, I don't really know. (laughs) Yeah. And then I don't, Uh, I don't really remember what ended up happening if he made pasta or like, he probably made us tuna out of a can and right. Right. You know, well, but I, I just remember this whole, like, even as a kid being like, I don't think dad does that. Right. Yeah. Did you, this is kind of a random, but I was curious when you're telling the story, like when your mom was home, did you get to choose what you had for lunch or was that a novel question in and of itself? Like, what do you want to eat? Yeah. I think we would be asked, but it was also kind of like, well, you know, you have to have a vegetable. So like, right broccoli or cauliflower. Right. The tr- the, like that's a good trick for child yeah. rearing and, and hanging out with kids is give them two options. And they Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, do you have memories of kind of like learning um, about how this type of stuff was um, like relegated by like divided by gender? Do you remember like learning about what that meant for you personally? Yeah. Yeah. Well, my parents, like, I think, so they had three kids and were all assigned female at birth. Mm -hmm. Um, so they, and my mom was like a, you know, they went, they went to school or they were, they met in college in the seventies at the university of Michigan. and, And like, I just have this picture of them developing like what they felt were what what that what were at the time like radical beliefs about about gender roles and so like their marriage was they they almost they had like I feel like they had mission statements kind of that were like family mission statements and definitely one of them was that like you get to decide you get to decide with your partner what the roles are and then hmm. it's not defined by gender um, even though some of theirs were, they were really, there was like this, they were pretty adamant that they had like, and they really worked as a team. Like they would, it felt that they had somehow kind of like worked these things out together. It was just a, a perception that I had. And so the, the, it was very, I don't know, kind of like the the language that I grew up with. And like, I think this is also emblematic of the time was sort of like, even though you're a girl, you can do anything you want. Right. You don't have to do anything you don't want. Even though. Even though you're a girl. Yeah. And that was really not what I was, that's not what I was experiencing in the world at all. So it's like a real clash between what 
their hope was for us. But that also sets up a hierarchy already just by saying like, even though everyone's telling you the opposite of this, right, right, it's not true, which like draws attention to it and still establishes that like, like in our home, like we operate differently from society. Right. Yeah, I know it was this, like their sadness, actually, I've done a lot of rounds on this, like their sadness to some degree, I think at, at feeling like the limitations that would be put upon the people that they were raising, that they loved so much, like I could feel it and their, their pushes against it were really you know, tremendously like important and supportive and also um, just like highlighted, you know, I had this real, I had like a very strong sense of doom about what challenges awaited me, you know? Yeah. As a, yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking like, you know, this, this sort of question of like, if you have a kid who's like assigned male at birth and they Mm want to wear address to school like do you say great or do you say like I just want to let you know like what to expect at school right and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of you know like questions within kind of parenting and I'm not a parent obviously but like I see this on the internet it's like on the Mm -hmm. one hand do you want to say like you're being subversive to your like tiny child and like and essentially tell them that what they're doing is different or strange or something like that. I, I don't want to do that, but at the same time, like, I don't feel like it's fair not to warn a kid. Um, but also then like, if that doesn't happen, Mm. you know, like then there's that issue. So I, I just, I wonder about that as we like, move through history totally yeah I know I mean I do too I babysat for this awesome mom who's um kiddo I think he still identifies as a boy but he um he's a sign male at birth and like she I, I babysat for them when he was four I think and she was just so great about helping him navigate like home space was totally open to all of his desires. You know, there was no, there was like the kind of support where you don't talk about it as subversive. You just like Mm -hmm. let it be free. And then um, I would sometimes, I think I would pick him up from school, but for some reason she told me like, I think somehow in some, one of our conversations, like she had made some distinctions about at home and at school. Cause he liked to be naked all the time too. Uh-huh. And she was like, you know, he knows he can't be naked at school, but he's allowed to be naked anytime at home. And like they had talked about, you know, that she would be there to like help him talk through if anything happened at school with his clothes. And I thought that that formed a really strong, I mean, in my experience of it, that one time formed like a really strong bond with, the two of them, then she could be his safety. And I think actually that's something that in a way was like kind of missing from some of the information about gender roles from my parents mm. was like, we were aware of the adversity and like the potential for adversity. And we are aware of their like hopes and dreams for us. But I think like 
I don't remember there being a lot of discussion about like the pain, you know, there's a lot of like anger, anger has a lot of room and like dreaming expansion had a lot of room Mm -hmm. and like, you know, and I, I don't know. I'm trying to decide if I want to take that back. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> there maybe there was room for pain, but I think like, you know, helping kids cope with adversity rather than covering it up is generally a good rule. Right. And rather than like not giving them language to possibly describe their feelings. Mm. Yeah. But giving them language to describe their feelings while also leaving like you don't want to um you know, lead, lead the witness or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. That's a great, it's, it's really a fine balance. Right. Yeah. I mean, this idea of like, even though you're a girl yeah. is yeah. like, ugh, that's- I'm sure they never, that's like, that's kind of like that language existed in between. That's like what I found between the world and my parents was like, right. the world was saying, you're a girl, you can't do that. My parents were saying, you're a girl, you can do anything. And right. the in between, like the bridge to those was like, okay, even though I'm a girl. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like supposedly can, but yes, I actually, now that you now that we're talking about it, you know, I realize like how much then. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe this gets too far. Maybe this goes like into some of the later questions that, or like, sorry, I'm tongue-tied. In a way, like this opens up some whole other door. But there was so much pain happening that I had no way to name. And I think that this paradigm of like what I was experiencing in the world and what my parents wanted me to believe was possible, like something about that gap created this space where I couldn't tell them things because I didn't want to hurt them or make them feel sad. And I, I didn't want that to be my reality. So it just like I... I didn't name or understand them with anybody. And a lot of that pain is like rooted in gender and then, and labor and like expectations. Yeah. 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 Do, can we talk for a second about the word girl? Yeah. Let's talk about it. Okay. That's something that came up for me um, recently um, for like a really specific reason that I won't go into, but Mm. the word I remember like, several years ago at like 26 or 27 feeling like if I can't call myself a woman now, mm. when, when is that going to feel comfortable for me? Like mm. I'm, yeah. I'm ostensibly an adult, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of like made this conscious choice with my language to shed the word girl for myself. Mm. Um, yeah. And recently I've um, started to think about that as like possibly kind of some inner child work that I need to do Mm. around the possibility of like being both, you know, that you can Mm -hmm. be a a girl and a woman and like Mm -hmm. at the same time, or you can like hop back and forth or, um, or that, you know, that I'm like denying myself something by, by insisting that I'm no longer a girl. Mm. But now when I look when I think about the word girl, that does feel oddly misgendering to me in a way that like, I'm not yet uncomfortable with the word woman. Cause mm-hmm. I feel like woman encapsulates like a much sort of broader spectrum of like 
gender identity and expression for some reason yeah. to me. Like, I feel yeah. like there's room for masculinity in womanhood that there, mm. and that there isn't room for in girlhood. Whoa. <laughs> no, I mean, this is so, um, I share some of those, I think I share some of those unconscious associations for sure. Um, yeah, it's funny because, because I, because my, there are ways that I still feel attached to gendered words like woman and girl. Um, and when I talk about myself as a kid, like depending on what I'm needing to discuss, I'll refer to myself as a girl or mm. a kid or, you know, like something more gender, um, gender accurate, I guess, like a little, little person or like little being or <laughs> something like that. But, but I like, I feel an attachment because to some degree, like girl is something like I got through my childhood being a girl and it's, and this is something my sibling who's also genderqueer has said, um, you know, that they like wanted to keep their, the accomplishments Mm. that they, they like achieved inside of that scope. They were really tough and cool and like skateboarded and like things like, you know, they were very gender nonconforming. And there's this way that like, that's kind of, there's like a way that some of that is like my metal or my like, yeah. Like your armor you know, and your shield and you yeah. built it. Yeah. 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 And like my sword, I want to say, you know, right. was like right. learning how to be a girl in a way that didn't kill me mm-hmm. and like kill my soul. Right. <laughs> dramatic, but no, it's not dramatic. Gosh. That's life. But so there's, and then when I hear you talk about this reclamation of it, um, that it makes a lot of sense to me because there's like this way that the more I mature, the more my gender identity um, becomes like an exploration. And the more, the more I open those doors, um, the more I feel like, like myself as a kid, I'm like Mm. rediscovering personality traits. I just forgot or um, so it, it makes sense to me that somehow shutting that all the way down and never, never allowing like, a child identity vocabulary word to like come in to play right. would be limiting. Yeah. I think, I think that was what I was noticing when I heard someone else use the word girl and I was like, mm-hmm. like to refer to herself. And I was mm-hmm. like, Oh wow. Like, you know, am I, am I limiting myself by, mm-hmm. by, ref- by deciding that like this word no longer applies to me or, Right. You know, and, and I am actually in dialogue with my childhood self. I write her oh, letters and amazing. like, yeah. And I have for years, it's been like an ongoing practice that actually, as I'm saying it, I'm like, Oh, it's been a while. I should check in oh, with her. Yeah. But, but, um, but yeah, I think that there's the, for <laughs> somehow it seems like girl and woman are like mm-hmm. two different genders. Right. Essentially. Right. Well, our, yeah. Yeah. I just have um, two thoughts at once. Oh yeah, go ahead. No, I, I think I'll choose. Well, it's okay. I had this thought when you were talking about it and I like, it, it was fun to sort of do, do a little bit of journaling before the session and start to see and try to like see things within the framework of labor. So my brain is in mm. that place of like, what cool. are the loads that we share? And when you talk about cutting out the word girl, it reminds me 
to like respond to some of the infantilizing or the like the problematic aspects of it, right? And like the the ways that it's been it's like used to violate and like undercut women. Um, I it makes me think about like where things are currently for me with gender expression is that I went really far when I I came out pretty recently and I went really far in the mask direction masculine direction in terms of expression mm-hmm. um, at first partially because like I was free for the first time to really do that and it felt incredible but also a lot of that was about like legibility for other people and like wanting other people to read me correctly. And so this idea of like using the word woman and like denouncing the word girl, it's a bit of a pendular swing to like have the social impact be more appropriate or like to have your, the perception of you from within and without like be more appropriate to where you actually are in your maturity. Mm -hmm. And that, that like, when we that it's just an interesting thing to think about that as a kind of labor and though uh-huh. that's like a serious emotional labor for me to cut out and now I'm so I'm starting to bring in all these things from that I like thought I had to I thought there was no room for them like aspects of feminine expression or um, just like full expression and I'm bringing them back now and it's so interesting like it does sometimes feel like what I'm being, what I'm trying to do and what's very hard to do is to put the labor back more, more squarely in the middle of me and everybody else that I interact with of being like, I'm going to need you to go ahead and understand that I'm still in a they space just because I'm wearing a dress doesn't mean that you can start slipping into misgendering me or like just because I'm wearing a dress doesn't mean that I have to start suddenly feeling like, I need to move my body more gracefully. You know, like I literally, my brain just changes so much about what it regulates depending on what I'm wearing. And that this idea of like how much more emotional labor gets heaped on. Anyway, that's, it's like, I mean, that's another aspect of the labor, but just this idea of making sure like our values or our identity is legible to other people is really like, it's a lot of labor. That also, it also totally plays into capitalist systems because like legibility costs money. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of even like a friend of mine, um, who's, um, who's a trans guy. And like when, when I've talked to him about his, um, transition, like he's talked about, he was taught, he talked about how, uh, like now if he were, if he were to come out now, he probably wouldn't have, um, like would have, would have like been more comfortable in a non-binary identity and like he doesn't believe that there's a wrong body but Mm -hmm. he did get top surgery and he was like for for legibility's sake and like top surgery costs money it's incredibly painful there's a huge recovery period like so legibility you know dysphoria is it's is it is this kind of separate issue from legibility though they're related. I think when we're talking about dysphoria and like reducing dysphoria through surgeries and body modifications and, and hormones and stuff like that's a sort of like internally focused healing thing. Whereas like legibility is mostly external. Right. And I think that like finding whatever that, that balance is so that like you feel, you know, your dysphoria is assuaged. Um, for your sake, you know, so that that's like right. a, that's like a personal thing and it's not, 
I, I would I would love to see like us as a society get to a point where like legibility was more about like personally feeling yeah. comfortable in your body rather yeah. than like I want to make sure that other people don't think that I'm like faking it when I use right they pronouns you know right. like oh god how, yeah yeah like if I oh if god. I use they pronouns and I wear a dress like there's also there's a lot of I was I, what I wrote down as you were talking is like insecurity around legibility like oh, how yeah. how much of are you know I like I wouldn't want to be um like seeking legibility because I'm not confident about my identity mm. um mm. like if there's an insecurity and then the right. legibility feels necessary as like a performance for the sake of others right. as opposed to um like being confident in my identity and then right. being able to say like right just because I'm wearing a dress so right well, and then this, I mean, oh man, there's so many things. It is so intertwined, as you said, because when I, and I think this like could be, be talked about more, not because it's everybody's experience, but man, legibility could be like a whole, it's so vast. There is like, um, I've talked to a lot of other trans and non-binary folks who like didn't find their narratives in the popular narrative of transness. Like for instance, that, you know, where you want to be located in some sort of final destination of your exactly, gender. Exactly. Yeah. But in order to get society to, to um, essentially like see you as a person with equal rights, you have to perform some sort of like, it's an easier pill to swallow or understand for like the general culture or like, or well, the powers that be or the, the majority, I suppose, to like swallow if you just always this idea of like born this way, like I can't help it. I'm born this way and I know what this way is and I know what it looks like instead of the reality that like, you know, I didn't know until I was 20. I didn't know and I didn't start getting glimpses that I was non-binary until like 28. Yeah. Because I, I just, you know, it was, I, there's, and so this, this like work that we do to fit the model or to like be legible is sometimes related to insecurity and sometimes related to like not, um, not like oppression or, you know, like any inequality. I'm just thinking about, and also like lack of language. Like I feel like yeah. language in these, in, in like identity is like more than I think any other realm of like our existence, language is so much, in, so much intertwined with, with permission and like mm -hmm. self knowledge, like being able yeah. to describe who we are, not just to other people, but to ourselves, like being yeah. able to sort of have to have like the language can be mind expanding in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, I didn't know it's, I, somebody asked me like, do you, do I have like, does, did my memories change when I came out? And I was Whoa. like, fuck yeah, they did. You know, this whole like retroactively my whole life. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this isn't public radio. No. Right. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um yeah like my whole all of my memories backward completely shifted both when I like in terms of sexual my sexuality and my gender but this you know that having language 
or having a framework to understand what had been being felt um, mm. really changed. Like I actually remember, I used to say I had a really happy childhood and it's so sad because on, le- on a lot of levels I really did, but um, like actually it was so lonely mm. and I didn't even really know about that until very recently. Mm. Yeah. I, as you're talking about that, it's like, I've, I've had a similar experience of like memories changing, um, being reframed and like mm-hmm. some even resurfacing or, mm-hmm. or yeah, like being recategorized as like, mm-hmm. you know, not just like this funny thing that happened when mm-hmm. someone was like kind of careless, but instead being like, Oh no, that was assault. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but more along the lines of like the memories changing around, um, around my childhood, like comes from, from illness and like understanding mm-hmm. that I was actually sick and yeah. that I wasn't, you know, like being a tired kid or like oh, how funny yeah, it was yeah. that I, how funny it was that I used to like burp like disproportionately to my body size and how much food I ate and that like all my friends thought that was funny and I would get like side eye from my parents, right? you know, or like remembering that, you know, every time I went to Cold Stone Creamery, like I would end up on the toilet shitting and vomiting at the same time for an hour right? and being like, oh, I'm just like, I'm just, that's so funny that that happens to me and like doesn't happen to, you know what I mean? And like now being like, oh my God, like, something was wrong. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And even, even things like at sleepovers, I was always the first one to sleep and people would like poke me and, and like laugh at me. And, and that I like, didn't, I didn't like pizza and I didn't like Mm -hmm. cake and like kids Mm -hmm. thought that was weird, but it was because it was, they were making me sick, you know, like I wasn't conscious of that. Anyway, it's really interesting as an adult to have these experiences that suddenly like reframe like all of a sudden yeah. learning that I was sick made me feel um, like I wasn't being seen as a kid in a way yeah. that I didn't recognize. Like I didn't, I wasn't conscious that I wasn't being seen until I fully understood what it was that was being overlooked. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's really lovely. That's really helpful re- reframing <laughs> because I had this conversation with my mom recently Um, or I mean, it wasn't that recent. It was like a year ago, maybe. Um, but actually like when I came out, I came out as genderqueer to her as non-binary, um, we were talking and I kind of, I was like trying to describe, I guess I just was wanting to air some of those feelings of like, um, I wasn't really upset with her at the time, but I just wanted her to know like, oh my God, I've gone back and turns out this has been happening all along and this is, it was very intense and I didn't know how to share it with you. And, um, and she was like, you know, I just, I feel like I want to just recognize, you know, and I want you to remember, like, it wasn't all bad. You, you were a really happy kid and like you had lots of happy times and it was so, you know, I just had this moment where I said, I really don't, I know that and I don't know how else to describe it to you except that like for, for 20 years, I was like at least 20 years, maybe more 25. I was like living in black and white and now I'm living in color again. And I was at one point before living in color 
And there's this feeling of like immense relief. And then also this feeling of immense sadness to have like lost myself for 25 years and to have lost contact with myself. And she really like, it settled in, but, um, but it was, oh, what did you say that was like, made me want to go call my mom and like (laughs) being seen. Yeah. And like reframing memories, understanding that they, they maybe meant something else from, I mean, everything that you're saying, if it comes back to you, please say so. But like everything that you're saying, I, when I finally got a diagnosis last year, I was like, I had that same sort of split of like, Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful and I'm so glad that I figured this out. Like what an incredible relief and also so much retroactive frustration that it took this long and that I, you know, I'm, I'm a tiny adult. Like I don't think I was properly nourished my entire Mm -hmm. childhood. Like I never had a growth spurt. I've been the same size since I was like nearly 12 years old, you know? And Mm -hmm. like, being like looking back on my life and thinking like how much more could I have accomplished? How much better of a student would I have been if I wasn't constantly like nodding off in class? Like, you know, just all these, all these thoughts about my, my prime, like brain development years that, that were, you know, my brain was developing on like so little nutrition, (laughs) like, you know, yeah, 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 right. Right. And I think about that kid and like going back and being like, Hey, you know, like here are ways that you can feel better and mm-hmm. and um and then also like caring for her on an emotional level and being like I see what's going on with you and and this mm-hmm. is really hard and it's not it's not you, you know, yeah. it's not um punishment for anything and right. um and you don't have to feel this bad. Like you don't yeah. have to feel this way. Right. Well, and you know, what's remarkable is that like when we're talking about this point moment of discovery, like I often feel, Mm. I mean, similar, I had similar feelings when I realized like I could call what I, I could call what I experienced depression. I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. okay, this is a name and this is a name. And like, it's not as scary to put myself in this quote unquote category. And um, there was a lot of relief and there was also a lot of like, well, everything we talked about, but then like also was this capacity. I think that's something I'm further along with. Depression is something I like have known. Depression and anxiety in my relationship to them is something I've known a lot more about for a longer time and like has really gotten folded into how I do my job and how I do my work and what I have to offer. And so even though it like sometimes was it like limited my emotional nutrition or like it limited, you know, the, the things that maybe I, like when you say I could have been a much better student, it's, um, it's such an interesting thing to like hold that grief with the knowledge that also everything that you are and have been and have experienced prepares you so deeply to do the work you do now and to, to even like um, to offer support, you know, to others. And the way that I, the way that I funnel all of, like kind of obsessively funnel all of my painful experiences into some sort of functional mm-hmm. tool for my toolbox is also a very, very gender centric, like socialized behavior, but it, it does help me. Um, you know, it's also queer magic. It's like both at the same time, me yeah. being an emotional caregiver, you know, 
all the time, even trying to find ways that my pain like bread prepares me for that is like a combination of, of like gender, gender shit that I wish I could shed. And also like the, you know, queer magic, knowing that, that complexity is valuable. Yeah. That's perfect because I was just about to ask you about your work. Um, how, how do you describe, I mean, I've, I've done sessions with you, both um, yes. tattooing and ritual and yeah. um, they've been so like impactful and transformative for me. So I wanted to let you describe them um, a little bit if you'd like. Sure. Yeah. Um, thank you, Mia. Yeah. I, I forgot that we met because of tattooing. I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I started, I think the work, I like found a way to combine the skills that come naturally to me and the, and some of the like randomness of like what I've had to learn to do through like lots of odd jobs. Um, and where that's landed me is that I'm like a, um, I practice like witchcraft and I share, um, I do the one-on-one sessions with people to build ritual practices that fit them. And sometimes that involves witchcraft and sometimes it's like very, uh, it doesn't, it's, it has all kinds of aesthetics that it taps into and, and we use whatever makes the most sense for the client. So for some people, it's going to be just adding structure to their life. But I think the general trend that I see is that if people are coming to a session for ritual, they want to add, infuse some like beauty and ceremony and like, um, and awareness, I think, awakeness. Mm-hmm. And so that looks a little bit different for everyone, but it does, it, it look, it, um, there are some through lines and just finding ways to expand, um, the moments when they feel the most drawn into their own life or like tapped into themselves or finding ways to acknowledge, um, big life changes, positive and negative with some sort of symbolic action and recognition. And that's what, and I use tarot for that. And then um, I found my way to that by this other thing that I do, which is tattooing, which is um, kind of ceremonial in its own. It was ceremonial before I knew that it was. And it really taught me how to hold that kind of space with others and um, been tattooing for five years. Wow. Self-taught. Um, Let's talk about that process a little bit. Can I share like how, I mean, I don't remember how I found your Instagram, but I was particularly drawn to it because you were drawing vessels at the time. Yeah. And I was a ceramicist at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really drawn to like the minimal line work and, and then finding out that you were also hand poking Mm -hmm. I that like really spoke to me as like a process oriented person yeah um and a person who was really interested in like slowing down you know ceramics is like um a technology that has not been updated in you know like thousands of years aside from making kills electric instead of gas or fire um so I was really drawn to that and then I I believe I reached out to you and you said, um, and I was like, I don't know what your process is, but like, I'd love to get a tattoo with you. And you said like, well, tell me what's going on in your life. 
mm-hmm. basically. And at the time, I had come back from a ceramics residency in Japan, and I was like, you know, I'm kind of working on this, like, the artist's relationship to their ego and, like, mm-hmm. what, you know, how much do I need to kind of believe in myself and, like, promote that and share that? Um, and how much can I, like, maintain kind of humility and, like, um, you know, modesty? And then I went to L.A., and so we had to reschedule. That's right. And then, mm-hmm, and then I uh, decided I was moving to L.A., and so I believe I wrote, I wrote to you, like, from the plane, and I was <laughs> like, yeah, and I was like, everything has changed, and I'm now pretty sure, yeah, that I'm yeah. – moving home to like where I'm from, um, which was a place that I like wholeheartedly rejected for many years. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then when I got to your studio, you had these, like what I read as like timelines with a bunch of knots dripping down from them. And then you had a bunch of loops Mm -hmm. and then we ended up combining them. So now I have a knot, a knotty loop (laughs) on my arm. And then amazingly, um, I ended up staying in New York for a little while to kind of uh, deal with some heart centric issues that I Mm -hmm. had lingering and needed to sort out. And then now like this, this essentially like timeline loop that I have on my arm is like, it's kind of this cyclical thing where it's like, I can look at my entire life as being on that loop, Mm. in which case, like, I don't know where I'm at on it now. Mm-hmm. I can also look at like a single day on that loop or a week right. on that loop or a month or a year or a chapter on that loop. Mm-hmm. Um, and that tattoo means a whole lot to me. So that's just for anyone who's interested in, in how getting a tattoo with you works. <laughs> that's how it goes. But also your, your aesthetic has changed a lot since then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think you went through like a figurative phase, right? And yeah. that's when I got this woman on my yes. other arm. Um, but now you're doing, um, I don't know, can you talk about like where it's at now? Totally. Yeah. I also, it's so sweet. And like, I think we did this all via DMS, right? Yeah. 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 Everything is different. Um, yeah, I think like, you know, when back then I was still really understanding, I didn't really understand what it was. The practice, the practice was like a lot broader and had a lot less shape. And those moments were when like those connected for me, what kinds of questions I need to ask my clients, you know, what information do I want and when do I want it? Um, and like the, the, like, it was the first time I was trying to tattoo full time, I think at that point. And so I was just all in and I was working all the time and I was, it was like, you know, people were inquiring through all avenues and, and getting mature in this work has meant like really getting specific about how I want to be contacted, what information I need, when I need it, how I take it in. And so I have like, I steer people a lot more. And it's interesting because most, a lot of people who worked with me back then had a less, what you're describing is a lot, is quite similar to what I do now. Hmm. But there was a lot of like, I was doing a lot of custom drawings that were, you know, sort of on the edges of my interest. Um, aesthetically, I got, I got kind of bored with, um, well, I guess I just moved, I moved, um, I'm a Gemini, so change (laughs) has to come, um, often. So I've moved into doing 
more with shading, less with yeah. line work and much more abstract. Um, I, I went to Sicily in the um, fall and I think that some, well, that place did a lot of, I did a lot of resets while I was there and a lot of initiation. Um, but one of them is like, Mike, I came back and I was just drawing totally different things. A lot of windows and portals and archways and passageways. And, and you found a, a family member through that. That's right. That I story, did. I mean, you can share that story. We, we have to wrap up soon, but I, I think you should I share know, that story if you're willing. I, yeah, totally. I know. I feel sort of like strangely, I feel strangely like I got stuck in a gender vortex, which I can do and like I love to talk about, but I feel a little bit bad because no. we I'm so glad there. we went there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I found a family member by those drawings. So my family part, a very like one part, my grandfather on my dad's side is from Sicily and I work with, with um, I work with ancestral spirits in my own magic practice. And um, I've I went to Sicily. I don't know any living family there. I'm sure they exist, but I went just to like reconnect with the land. There's a lot of frac. There's like some sadness and fracturing associated with family for me in general. And so it was this really beautiful thing to get to go and like bridge, um, just go directly to the land and work with the dead instead of the living and let them like guide me. I didn't really plan my trip very much. I just went back to the last place that we know they were. Mm. And, um, uh, and I met like a true angel there um, who, anyway, now I'm, I'm really digressing, but my <laughs> host, my host in the place where my family was from was really touched by why I was there and really helped me a lot. Um, and so it was in her home that I was staying in, like, um, I drew this drawing, put it on Instagram, someone DM me and wanted it as a tattoo. And then we got delayed for months and months. And um, finally, like, we arrived to the day that we're going to do this tattoo and they come and they're really sweet and gentle and wonderful and like, uh, want to talk a little bit about what the drawing means to them and want to talk a little bit about what it meant to me and why I drew it. And in the course of this conversation, it becomes clear that like for both of us, it's related to work that we're doing with ancestral spirits. And that that's the drawing reminded them of, um, you know, the story and like experience they've had working with a, a, a spirit from their family. And um, I told them I had drawn it in Sicily and they want to know why I went there. I told them family. And kind of like through the course of this, they're walking around and I'm setting up to tattoo and they're walking around my studio and they saw my license where I have my full name, mm -hmm. which has my Sicilian last name because my name is hyphenated. And um, I don't use Cardillo usually. I don't know why, but apparently just so that I could have this beautiful secret. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're like, oh, weird, my family. Like I have my, my Sicilian side, they're also named Cardillo. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's a really common name. They're probably from Agrigento, the same uh, like region that my fam's from, or maybe they might be. And um, I had no inkling that they were a relative for like majority of the, the conversation. But we Didn't just- did a recipe come up? Wasn't yes. There, yeah. yeah. Like step by step. And I think, you know, they really held, they were like, something is up. And I was just so blasé setting up, like we're not related. And then finally they, I said something you know, I said something about 
the, the family, the personalities, and like some of the trajectory that, that my parent has specifically had inside of the family. And it was characteristic enough that they were like, wait, do your Cardillos have like a really old sausage maker that's been in the family for years and years and they have annual sausage parties? And I was like, yeah, there is a sausage maker. You know, I've never been to one of the sausage parties because we haven't spent a lot of time with them, but um, in my, in my, in my teens or whatever. But um, anyway, yeah. So the sausage maker was the key and we realized, and then they named some cousins and we realized that our grand, their grandma and my grandpa were brother and sister. So that is amazing. And they were like wearing their grandma's ring oh my God. at the time. And they said the most beautiful thing as soon as we, we I got, I mean, I got heart palpitations. I had to stop tattooing because I'm oh. in the middle of putting something in their skin. Right. You right. Know? I was like, oh, I got to stop. And then, um, and uh, there was just such a beautiful synchronicity to it because they're also non-binary and we both never really, we like, we talked a bit about experiencing like safe, safety and familiarity in family being something like we didn't necessarily ever anticipate. And I think my body's nervous system is so used to performing in front of family and not performing in front of my clients that it started to like glitch out. Yeah. And they said, um, you know, just think about how many spirits are in the room right now laughing at their handiwork. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, now, you know, my cousin Lou lives like a couple subway stops away and wait, it's Lou. It's not, wait, it's not Lou. It's not Lou, our friend Lou. It's a different Lou, L-U. Okay. Oh my God. (laughs) That would have been too much. (laughs) No, that's just another magic sibling out there. Wow. Gosh, that is so incredible. I'm like, had you never just decided to like do that work for yourself? Mm. You just never would have met this family member and also amazing that you like went all the way to Sicily to reconnect with family. And then it turned out your family was in Brooklyn in Brooklyn. Yeah. It was so, it was so ridiculous. I mean, I, and, and my immediate feeling like was this, Oh, this is why I went. I mean, there's so many reasons that it nourished me on so many levels, but there was this like feeling that I, I went because literally in a session, the ancestors were like, you have to go. And Lou, our friend, mm-hmm. Lou, not my cousin, yeah. who does these incredible sessions, um, had asked me one day how I wanted to celebrate like a little breakthrough. And I was, I was being the client while they were the practitioner. Cool. And they said, you know, how do you want to celebrate? And I said, I want to, I want to go to Sicily. And it was something that like I'd you know, was in my ether, but I didn't think I would ever do. So talk about like a web of support. Yeah. And I mean, if not for their support as a spiritual practitioner, I wouldn't have zeroed in. I wouldn't have gone to Sicily. And, right. and, then, well, and, and, and you know, Lou, our friend Lou, because I told them about your tattoos. And they oh, tattoo wow. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. And they were my first client. They were my first official ritual client. I think I like mentioned it to them while I was giving them a tattoo and I don't know you know it's just the kind of it makes me think about I just felt so seen all of these situations are like experiences of being seen and understood um but yeah Lou was 
Lou was so ready to do ritual, like re- more ready than I was. Mm-hmm. And they often were like, I think you're supposed to help me with this. I was like, I don't know. It's kind of, that kind of seems like heavy lifting or like very serious. I'm not sure I'm qualified. And they were like, you, you booked me for a ritual session. Well, so, and Lou also got you your precious baby kitty. My precious baby kitty. Lou was there. Lou, I think, is directly responsible. This is not cousin Lou, friend Lou. Yeah, but Lou was there the day before my my this big breakup from my last um, mm. partnership, which was a heterosexual partnership, and shortly thereafter, I came out as genderqueer and and um and like pansexual, or you know. So I feel often like Lou mm-hmm. has been a real angel. Um, yeah, I mean, whoa, yeah, they were incredible. That's um, cool. Yeah. Um, okay. I, there's one last thing that I want to ask you before we mm-hmm. wrap up because it's specifically about boundaries in your work because yeah. I think emotional labor, it's really hard to have boundaries around that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what you do, I think sort of like bleeds into what a lot of people would maybe not consider like, um, work. So mm, yeah. like the tattoos I think are really clear. Like no one's going to yeah. text you and be like, Hey, can you tattoo me for no money? But right. people I, I have often had to stop myself from being like, Hey Brooke, I need advice on this, like, Mm -hmm. like ritualistic thing or Hey Brooke, like this is my tarot reading this morning. Like, what do you think of this? And you know, it'd be different if you were maybe in a space where you were like, Hey, I'm thinking about getting into this work and blah, 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 you know? And then I could be like, well, you know, here's like a practice opportunity for you, for example. But like, how do you identify, set, and maintain boundaries around the work that you do um, because so much of it is like could be classified as emotional labor. It's not, a lot of it's not like tangible. It's not um, visible. Um, Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can, I can. Um, Yeah. Well, hmm. I am going to like let it kind of be a little stream of consciousness because, and then yeah, I'm literally just going to spout all the things and then I'm going to articulate them. Like Great. <laughs> first, first comes to mind or, or most recent thing that came to mind was this idea of sharing the load that's coming into play lately where I don't have to hold all the boundary. So if someone texts me inappropriately, I don't answer because it's not my, like this happens frequently at midnight. I'm like trying to answer someone, take care of them in ways that are direct, are really harmful to, to me, not the person harming me, me harming me because I'm not acknowledging my limits. Um, my therapist just, we did this whole session on limits. So I feel like I have to credit her because I really didn't even have this word for it until recently. So understanding my own limits the limitations like, of your resources. Yeah. And being comfortable that I have limits is right. a huge struggle. Yeah. Um, and that is something I, I'd say that's like, I'm currently working on that. And then what was there was, a, I didn't spout them. I just went in. Um, uh, following one way that building boundaries happens the most naturally for me is like, um, following 
the observations about what is happening can really help you build efficient boundaries. Like I was insisting that my sessions be an hour and they're consistently an hour and a half. Mm. It just always happens. And so one day I was like, just call them an hour and a half on your website. Like for God's sake, it's always 90 minutes. And, and, and just observing that and how it changed my relationship to being paid appropriately, even though I didn't raise my rates. I just stopped feeling bad about my rates because I was like, it's an hour and a half. It's like not even an hour. It's extra. It changed my relationship to what was happening during that last half hour instead of feeling like Gotta maybe someone had to like, more to be or yeah. Right. So I, I think that to some degree, the boundary making, it like has to follow the logic of the work a little bit, which is not something that I think, that's not something I like read about with boundaries. That's something that, I used to feel guilty at my inability to create boundaries. Like I'm keeping it an hour because that's what I said I would do. Right. And that the reality that works for me is much more flexible. Like if it happens enough times, then I need to do something about it. I need to change the format and allowing the format to be mutable has been like the primary tool that I use to keep myself healthy um, and to keep it creative. So it's kind of interesting because like usually if I'm feeling depleted, I feel a sense of accountability. Like there's something that's broken with the way I'm structuring it because I shouldn't be feeling depleted after this work. Um, and that's been pretty like true and helpful. And it's helped me zero in on like when my rates have been too low because it's definitely happened many times or when the time needs to be longer or when, the reason I feel depleted is that I answered the text message when I didn't want to. You have to have a moment then when you're like, this person's an adult and I'm going to let them be an adult and come to understand in their own time what they just asked of me and yeah. why, you know, why I'm limited. And, and I'll understand in what ways I maybe like enabled that or, um, but hearing you say that also makes me think that maybe I should have an option for people who are recurring clients. Like if you, for instance, if you were like, hey, I need a little advice, but I don't need a full session. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I should have a way that I say, sure, let's do a phone consult for 20 minutes and you pay, and it's like pay what you wish or, right. you know, where we already have a relationship so that, and that's what I mean about it being mutable because I could just sit here and kind of like guard these boundaries, but that's another, that's another sort of labor that I don't really like actually. I right. really like when people have avenues to treat me well. And I really don't like yeah. when those avenues are few, you know? Right. I love the idea of having like the option of like a check-in with mm-hmm. you um, where, you know, it's a 10 minute option or a 20 minute option. Um, yeah. And someone that I was doing this with in, on Instagram, like did offer to pay me. And I was mm-hmm. like, you know what, like use that money to like buy these two books that I recommended mm-hmm. and then just like share, you know, share mm-hmm things that I post on Instagram with people, like share the wheel and share stuff like that. Like that's how you can pay me, you know? Right. Um, And this is like a pretty young person that I know is not, you know, like, I don't want to take your money. I just want to talk to you forever. (laughs) Yeah, I know. We really do have to wrap up. We're like at an hour right now. And I just wanted to ask you um, if there are, if you can share three, um, like whether it's people, books, movies, uh, music, experiences, or relationship, anything like that, anything that you would say are like so formative for you that they are kind of directly related to why you are exactly where you are right now in your life. Oh my God. 
Um, this question gave me so much pain. I, I've <gasps> been, I, I was like, I need 20 at least. Like I can't. Um, so I told myself I was going to decide in the moment because I, I, I wrote three pages and it wasn't, it wasn't everybody um, or everything. I just, it's just, and then I wanted to say like, it's a beautiful question because in writing three pages of I love that formative, like stuff, media, books, people, um, I just, I felt, you know, it's so easy to feel alone. Um, just, just period, um, in the world and like, let alone right now. Um, you know, there's a lot, I feel very dismal some, and like, um, you know, when you're in a situation like this and you're literally like your, your own, um, all of the, all of the like systems that you're a part of are not, are not able to support you. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so beautiful to meditate on, um, how deeply supported I have been by so many people and pieces of art. And like, it just, it was incredible. So I think everyone should try to do it. <laughs> um, and you'll probably send a lot of thank you texts afterward. Um, but I found, I, I'm going to do, th- okay. I'm going to do three. Like you asked. Okay. <laughs> it's hard. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to talk, I tried to do a children's book because those were really, I'm, I'm a visual artist and, um, and I think, um, good night moon mm. is still, a book that impacts like the visuals of my literal um, nighttime dreams. Like I think that reading that before bed and having that um, those images and like the kind of, it, it had an eeriness to it. I don't know if anyone else felt it was eerie, but nighttimes were really lonely times for me. I didn't sleep very easily. And so the images that were the last things I saw would like just continue to sort of spin and weave and I'd be up for a long time. I shared a room and I would, I'd always be a, the last one awake. And so I was thinking about children's books and the way that Goodnight Moon is illustrated just really feels like it still plays a role in how I imagine magic and how I, how I plan my visuals or like imagine, you know, the, the, the spaces that I'm drawing when I draw tattoos. And, um, and I've, and then in, uh, like a recent piece of media that's been really moving me is that my friend Mel had showed me this artist, Beverly Glenn Copeland. And he's like a, um, he's just like this incredible, I mean, an incredible musician and like a queer elder who has sort of described his current experience of, of having his music um, have this mo- moment of intense bloom with young audiences that that he's like described it as kind of feeling like, um, I don't know, it feels like this beautiful meeting with a, of, of like a queer elder with the community that like really needed him and needs his work. And, um, and, and it feels like a symbiotic need. Like it feels like it's a really beautiful sense of completion for him to have this young community find so much, um, recognition and resonance with his work and he has there's a song called La Vita that's really beautiful that's been playing nonstop in my house and um hmm. 
Sorry, I'm going to just have a long pause because I feel like this is like the, I just want to make sure I get a good one. Yeah, okay. I'm going to go with the, pl I planned on this, but I wasn't sure, but now I'm sure. Okay. Um, this one's like a little more practical. Like if it, it I couldn't do the work I'm doing now if um, this this therapist that I, is not my therapist, but I am connected to through family, um, had loaned me these audiobooks. Her name's Jane Martin. She's exceptional. She's in Tucson, um, and she loaned me these audiobooks when I was in my moment of deepest depression when I was 23, and. Um, it's the, it's like, I really was like dead, you know, I was like dead and I knew I was dead and I, um, I knew I wanted to come back to life, but I was really struggling to like have an appetite to, to do that. And she loaned me these audiobooks by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Um, and she loaned me Healing the Stone Child, Women Who Run With the Wolves, and seeing in the dark and I listened to them I listened to them I mean I, I like can't even count the times um but they really reintroduced me to myself and she writes a lot about you know she doesn't actually talk that much about gender in ways that it's it's very gendered because what she talks about a lot is like recovering I think you're, you're right to be like a full person as someone assigned female at birth. She writes a lot um, about how to heal and like re, re um, to trust yourself and to, to be allowed to be everything that you are, not just a limited view. And so even though she writes it um, because of the timing and, and her exposure you know, it's not like technically using genderqueer language, but I think those were my first, I think that's when I started to feel like beastly and magical and gross and like in a good way, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm guy, I'm fucking gross. And I like to be gross and like my body does stuff and um, that stuff is okay. And, and it made me want to live again in a way that I, I am really grateful for. And I think it directly contributed to me wanting to be someone who took my pain and then utilized it to help other people. That's so beautiful. My candle just went out. Amazing. Whoa. Amazing. <gasps> yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, can you tell everybody where they can find you? You can find me at brooker, B-R-O-O-K-E, H-E-R-R dot com on Instagram. I'm Basics, which is spelled B-E-H-S-T-I-C-K-S. I'm on Instagram at Mia Schachter. That's S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R. And you can follow the podcast at Share the Load Podcast. Special thanks to Pete Ziarto at Director Pete on Instagram for recording, editing, and producing. To Tyler Field for the music and Candice Ploy Goodman for the cover art. You can reach me with questions and comments at podcast at sharetheloadinc.com. If you find these episodes enriching or educational, please consider becoming a member on Patreon at patreon.com slash 
share the load. You can also help by rating and writing a review of the podcast on iTunes and sharing it with friends. Thanks, Brooke. Thank you so much, Mia. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Good job. Good job to you.